0: All right, here we go. Carol's going to make an announcement. Announcements about Christmas sharing. That was bad. That was one. Christmas sharing. Quiet.
1: <laughs> it was surprising, but two seconds, a second after Pastor said Christmas sharing, you all got quiet. <laughs> two announcements. One next Monday, the 20th, Monday night. That's our initial setup night. We need lots of help of all ages, especially people that can lift and move because we have to clean out all the Sunday school rooms, move all that furniture out, move in tables, other furniture for Christmas sharing, and all the stuff that we have downstairs. So, and it's, uh, a lot of kids don't have school that week, so it's a good time for families to come with kids, and we do have things for, maybe about this size? <laughs> Up. Or whatever. I mean, caring things are, are helping, so it's, it's, it's a good family night. The other... Um, Monday night, the 13th, I will be getting our list of names. So and so I'll know how many families we're going to have. And with that, I will get our list of the special requests. I'll have that list available uh, for you guys for a preview on next Friday. And then it will be posted. So that was just a heads up.
0: Thank you. All right. Great. Hey. Okay. Um I don't know if I don't know if anyone's keeping track, but I, I we should be finishing chapter two today of Song of Solomon. I I I I think Pastor Buke said he's like, I don't know where we are, so <laughs> I'm just gonna decide we're at the end of chapter two. Um Okay. So uh we read well we read part of this at the end of chapter two. All right, so just uh, uh, this is uh, two chapter two eight through seventeen. My subtitle, which is not holy scripture, says the bride adores her beloved. Which is uh, which kind of goes all the way through to um, even to chapter three. So, um, but one of the things in the middle got me thinking. Uh, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. Now, um, that same word could be pruning, but um, singing. So, because it's Song of Songs, right? Song of Solomon, singing. So this is a a very festive time. So so the bride is uh, sitting in her house and thinking about her bridegroom and all of a sudden he shows up at the window through the lattice and says, well, he maybe he does or maybe she's thinking about him showing up, but then he says, come out and we will go outside and frolic in the grass because it's, it's the right time to do that. Singing. So anyways, it made me think of this quote here. The church has an incredible, joyful song to sing. It's the song of the bride, rejoicing in total surrender to the love of her bridegroom. St. Augustine said, singing is a lover's thing. I can't remember if I used this quote before, so if I did, bear with me. The church's love song, in fact, is the new tongue that comes from the Holy Spirit in this heavenly song. The church experiences an inebriation surpassing all the possibilities of mere rationality. In other words, we cannot enter the joy, the inebriation, The church's love song merely with our minds, merely with an intellectual, rational grasp of theological ideas, however correct those ideas might be. Singing comes from a different place within the human being, from the depths of the heart. So, um, you know, I I think this is always just a constant struggle as we read the Song of Solomon because it's not like the Book of Romans. Um, Or even like the Gospels that tells a story. The book of Romans is very didactic. And usually when we think about our Christian faith, you know, it's, it's didactic, right? I mean, we're learning, we're, you know, someone's teaching, we're learning, and we think of classroom. Um, but the Song of Solomon is very different than that. And so as we uh, read it and, and try to learn from it, it can't be just simply um, ideas, but it has to be the whole, whole self or the whole body. So, in the chapter 2, then, we see that expressed quite, well, all over, Um, this constant talking about the other person and um, and what that means. So, uh, Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. Seems like a very simple statement, but it has very profound things. Uh, And I I quote Martin Luther because he uses the language of the Song of Songs um, here and then connects that with Ephesians chapter 5, which we will in a little bit. Ephesians chapter 5, especially the part that we're thinking of, is the part where Paul talks about Christ in the church and husbands and wives. Okay. So, the quote here, and if anyone, if anyone wants to follow along, I think I might have some on the table, or there's some in the back, these uh, little teaching charts. By the way, I haven't learned how to use an iPad. I think it was rolled out maybe on Sunday. I don't know, was it Pastor Brusic? Did he use the iPad on Sunday? Yeah. Oh, catechumenate, catechumenate. See, I can't, I don't know how to use it. So, one day... I'm going to save the environment and not have paper. So, but till then, you have to bear with me. Um. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll be able to do both. I don't know. I'm showing my age, so, this technology stuff frightens me. I'm all for, uh, yes, never mind. I I think I'm going to go crazy the moment, like, I know that in the modern wing, the modern, I forgot what it's called, at the Art Institute, Pritzker, modern wing of art. You know, they use technology in art, and I think if that becomes normal, I think I'll go crazy. Yeah, because... You have to have paintings and sculptures and, like, things, right? Yeah, it can't be just... But then again, I'm old-fashioned. Call me old-fashioned. Me and my backward ways. All right, anyway, so Luther uh, uses the language of Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 16, as he talks about faith. And so this is something that really is important for us as we we discuss, you know, I mean, a lot of these uh, things we talk about are earthy. I mean, you know, sensual and odors and body parts and things and but one of the things is that you know this quote does a really interesting job of of showing that there is something these the human love can only be fully human love if it's saturated with the divine love i think we talked about two weeks ago is that human eros is not enough eros has to be saturated with agape to receive the fullness of all these and I, I want to say that because I think it's important for us, you know, because, I mean, I really I really like this, and sometimes I'm fast and loose in my language. And so um, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, married couples are, are like... If you're not like the song of songs as a married couple, then there's something wrong with you. B- because you're... Congratulations, you're like everybody else. I mean, we're... This is... Uh, yeah. Or, obviously... I think I've mentioned this before too. Is that our fulfillment is always in God and not in our spouses for married people, which then actually throws light on each one of us as, as, as uh, you know, creatures of God. So, Song of Songs is for anybody, regardless if you're married or not. And I will actually show you a very simple example at the very end of class, dealing with a lawnmower, of how that's true. Okay. Well, we got to get to that point. So, all right, Martin Luther. Faith must be taught correctly, namely, that by it you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person. So we have spousal language, right? The two become one flesh, which cannot be separated but remains attached to him forever and declares, I am Christ. And Christ, in turn, says, I am as that sinner who is attached to me and I to him. So that he's using the language of Song of Songs. For by faith, we are joined together into one flesh and one bone. One bone, one flesh, that's Genesis, right? Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. One of my favorite verses. Um, Okay, so that's what Luther says. Thus, Ephesians 5.30 says, We are members of the body of Christ, of his flesh and of his bones in such a way that this faith couples Christ and me more intimately than a husband is coupled to his wife. That's from the Galatians commentary. So if anybody knows anything about, like, um, Lutheran historical theology, the the commentary on Galatians is, like, the ultimate commentary of Luther on what the gospel means. So... As Luther talks about the gospel, he uses song-of-song language. So, you know, I know everybody loves, uh, everyone who loves Luther really concentrates his words on uh, Romans, but we have here, when he describes faith, he describes it in the language of of song-of-songs. That last sentence, by the way, I mean, in such a way that faith couples Christ and me more intimately than a husband is coupled to his wife... We're talking Song of Songs, intimacy. Okay. So that, that again goes to the aspect of how our relationship with others is a sign, whether it's friendship or marriage, towards our heavenly marriage or our our union with God. Okay. Well anyways. So what does this mean for her okay, so now oh I I, I just I deleted a bunch of stuff here. Um So in chapter 2, 18 through 17, she's talking about her husband, her bridegroom. And what does this mean for her to speak and remember her bridegroom like this? I mean, these are very passionate rememberings of chapter 2. Well, we don't get, we had a little bit of the beauty of the bride in chapter 1, and then we get it again, like in chapter 4, which. Again, the Song of Solomon kind of goes around in circles a lot. Things you get in the beginning, you get again later. And So both the bridegroom and bride are beautiful because the love makes them beautiful. Remember Luther's 28th thesis of the Heidelberg Disputation. Love doesn't find its object. Love creates its object. So whether it's you or someone else, beauty is not an object to be conquered or possessed, but beauty is to be received and transformative. Period. Get rid of us. So so what we find out is as as she talks about her bridegroom and all these wonderful beautiful things what we have to remember and and point out is that she describes his his body a little bit but a lot of it is about what he does so like you know tonight or today you know come and hop over the mountains to come and see me and I'll just read it. Oh, the voice of my. So she hears the voice. So he's talking. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. What does that sound like? Superman. Okay. <laughs> my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands, behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. And then he says, you know, hey, Come along with me, so um, so it's a recitation of uh, you know what he's going to do for her, and that's that's important for us. But um, so the beauty that she sees in him is the love to which he shows. So love is action. So as we think about Jesus as the bridegroom and we are the bride, so beauty comes by way of the cross, because love is in the cross. So we see the action, right? So how do, how do we... Jesus is beautiful because he dies for us. So that's why we always, you know, because, I mean, the cross is kind of silly, right? I mean, it's foolish and offensive because there's a dead man hanging on some wood. But as Christians, we see that as the ultimate sign of love, which, of course, love is beautiful. So the most beautiful thing is the crucifix. Um, so so on the cross, but that so love is shown on the cross, but there's something else that happens on the cross. And and so as we kind of read the Song of Solomon and we, we hear about, you know, sex and like body parts and, and it's just, it's like kind of overwhelming sometimes. It's like, ugh, you know. That's why you had to be 30-something or another to read it way back when. Um, you know, because these, these images are really powerful, in a good and a bad way. I mean, it, 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 it's always in a good way, but it can be used in a bad way. And, and so, on the cross, and speaking of these images, especially, like, the beauty of, a, like, for a beauty of the woman's body uh, or the, the, the beauty of a man's body, um, lust can be cre- you know, cultivated. But see, on the cross, in the true beauty, lust is crucified. Our sins are crucified with Christ. And then also, shame is exhausted on the cross. See, so there's uh, Hebrews, Jesus despising its shame. Um, so, what that means then for us. It's not that, lust is wrong desire, and shame is, is um, we talked about this last year, is kind of the, uh, the line in the sand, right? We were created to be naked and without shame. But of course, when we sinned, what did we do? We covered ourselves up. Shame is just a, it's a boundary experience. But on the other side of the cross, there is no shame. Shame can't, shame can't go with you past the cross. It's exhausted on the cross. There's no more left. Um, and lust is redeemed. I think I might say this, right? On the cross, lust is crucified. Shame is exhausted. But love, true desire, and without shame is resurrected. So our desires are not annihilated on the cross. But redeemed on the cross. Across the resurrection. So then, and that's kind of the picture we're reading in Song of Songs, where this woman like she desires her bridegroom. I mean, she wants him to come to her, her bedroom. I mean, I'm not going to share that with confirmation kids, right? I mean, it's overwhelming. Who I don't, I don't, I don't know if I really talk about God that way. It's kind of a, kind of, different Um, and our shame doesn't hold us on the cross either but it's exhausted and then in replace of shame is joy is the garden of eden and uh, the joy of seeing another one that's adam's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh he's he's so excited okay so the reason why i bring that up is because we're going to take a look at what jesus is uh, what does it mean for jesus to be a bridegroom if we take a look at Jesus as a bridegroom, then we might understand why she says all these wonderful things about her bridegroom. Okay. So, um, God is Lord. And I think almost of the time we see him as God as Lord or Father. Right? But he's also a bridegroom. And so God loves us as a bridegroom, as a lover with all the passion of a true love. And we've talked about that a little bit. Is um, now so when we, I already mentioned this too. So in the Song of Songs, it reveals something about God that we might, that might be new for many of us. You know, we might understand, oh yeah, Jesus is a bridegroom because it says in the Bible. And we might intellectually acknowledge these words and perhaps maybe kind of keep this relationship sanitized. But that's that, but you know, because we're really uncomfortable with the language of intimacy that results from God being our bridegroom. And hence, Song of Songs is not like one of those books of the Bible that's like studied a lot amongst. Has anyone ever been like, I mean, I know a lot of you have been at St. John for a long time, but in uh, it, well, actually, I don't think at St. John we've had this Bible study before. Or um, any of the previous churches you've been at, have you studied Song of Songs? as like a Bible study. We got one. Okay. It's not real popular, and I, I wonder it's, I wonder if it's because of this all this intimacy language. Hoofta All right. so the way we react to it is I, it kind of three ways: Stoic as a stoic and as an addict or aspiring mystic. And I got that from Christopher Wess. he's that guy that we saw in the video about art and shamelessness versus without shame um, so the Stoic handles this very intimate and sensual language as like we're gonna keep it over there. Repress it. Almost almost to the point we don't even we don't acknowledge it exists. Well the addict addict what? Indulges it, but only on a surface level. And the aspiring mystic embraces it through, through faith. So that means embraces it, but also acknowledges that it's there to show us something more. It's for our union with God. So, um, yeah, because, I mean, if God is that passionate toward us, what is, what's the proper response then to such a passion? With a love such as this, what do we, what do, we do? Love him back with, with the same veracity and passion that he loves us. So that's why we see in the Song of Songs, we see this ever-circling of intimacy growing closer and closer. You know, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. So that's how the book starts out, right? Which is, whoa, okay. And then, in the middle, chapter four, you know he he talks about how he uh, his 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 bride is a garden closed, and he wants her to open it up to him. You're like, it's just getting closer and closer. So th- that's something where that's and that's basically what we want to do. We w- this is why we're having this study. It's because we want. We want to cultivate such a relationship between God and us. So, all right, what sort of bridegroom is Jesus? He's the passionate one. I have this quote from St. Augustine. Like a bridegroom, Christ went forth from his chamber. He came to the marriage bed of the cross, and there, in mounting it, he consummated his marriage. And when he perceived the size of the creature, he lovingly gave himself up to the torment in the place of his bride and joined himself to her forever. Um, Yeah, I mean, he's the one who loves us exclusively. He loves us and none other. He loves us passionately, and he loves us with his whole body. And then, of course, that's exactly what he does in the Lord's Supper, right? So what is on the cross is given to us in the Lord's Supper. All right, so he uses his body to love you, which means Jesus loves your body too. We, We talked about that a few weeks ago, how Jesus is fascinated with us. With a with a great love, so we can just kind of skip down with that because I want to get into the Gospel of John here. Um, well, yeah, just one thing: the fascination for the for the bridegroom is the bride's femininity, and the bridegroom's is is uh, I'm sorry is the the brides is the bridegroom's masculinity, which includes his body, their bodies, but also their hearts. It's, I mean, it's the whole person. So th- I think we might have mentioned that too before. So as we talk about, I mean, if you read all this stuff about the, the bodies of the man and the woman, the bridegroom and the bride, again, we have to see that language as that aspiring mystic where the lust has been crucified to the, Christ, to the cross and desire has been resurrected and redeemed. So it's really an acknowledgement of how grace has saturated your eyes to see what God sees. Okay. Which I think is great, because it starts with yourself, right? I think many of us have, I mean, many of us would love to, like, think about seeing other people as God sees them, but it's really hard for us to see ourselves as God sees us. And so that's another great thing about the Song of Songs is that he he's so he's fascinated with you you know i mean that's that's i yeah how many people do you know are fascinated with you you know but well, hardly anybody so um I mean, I, yeah. I mean, people, yeah. So God is fascinated. He loves being with you. He's fascinated by you. Not like you know, kind of like curious, like you know, like, but like, yeah. And so, yeah. So when you re you know, when you read, I mean, I just I keep on thinking about like you know some of the weird images too about the 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 woman's hair is like a herd of goats descending the hills of uh, like Gilead, Gilead is it? Um, or the uh, what was it the againy anyways you're like now that's fascinating you know but but the uh, okay so I mean this is this is great Um, all right so actually so I want so we bring up to this and I so the bridegroom and the bride imagery Old Testament and nuptial imagery I think Pastor Bukes might have done something with Hosea way back when but there's more to it. Obviously, creation, Adam and Eve. We did a lot with that already. The Mosaic Covenant. The Ten Commandments. I don't think I've ever mentioned this before. So the Ten Commandments, oh, I, th- I might and I have it quoted later, where I think I might have mentioned, right, Mount Sinai is a, a wedding, and the Ten Commandments are, are the uh, marriage contract. Well, how that is, is so the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods, right? So that's the statement of exclusivity, you know, we're exclusive, you know. We're not like just Facebook friends, or we're more than Facebook official. Is that how that works? Like, if you're really in with somebody, you say you're Facebook official. I still don't know how to work the iPad, so I don't know how that works. But what's the last commandment? Show no wife, right? I mean, uh, you should you should uh, you shouldn't covet or. Er, Covet your neighbor's wife. So it kind of begins and ends. Ten commands begin and ends with uh, marriage language. Uh, or nuptial imagery. The, um, yeah, and then, of course, you know, in Exodus 32, right? It's the golden calf chapter. What, is, uh, what happens in the camp when they have the golden calf? Yeah, but what's what's actually going on? Your English Bibles are uh it's it's very interesting how they translated it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a it's like, you know. Dra- yeah, well, it, yeah, it's it's not a brawl. It's to the point where Joshua thinks it's a victory. So she, he's like interpreting it as like this is really good. And Moses is like, uh uh-uh, uh that's not you don't hear that. That's not it. Yeah, it's it's like a they're they're it's like a drunken orgy. Now I think the word play is used in the ESV. They get up and play. Okay. But I don't. know, does Anybody else have any other Bible?
1: I would. Li- they got up too. It says after they sat down to eat and drink, they got up to indulge
0: in revelry. Oh, okay. That's that's probably more close to yeah. It's not it's not like something you want to bring your kids to, okay. So, so that's the thing, is that that's, that's how it's broken. You know, so Krista's uh, right. It's, uh, tr- you're not trusting. You don't have this, you don't have, you're breaking this relationship. But we don't really think about, like, how is that relationship broken? Well, it's broken by these actions. And these actions are precisely the opposite of what God wants to do. He wants to have union with you. And you go ahead and have union with a golden calf. Now, of course, Aaron says, hey, I just I just put the gold in the fire and I'll, it came out. You know, I can't I can control myself. It's not my fault.
2: Oh, is it not a uh, like today, too? That oh, yeah. For, for, uh, perhaps not excited, but other ideas.
0: Yes, right. I, yeah, so uh, idol worship is alive in a lot of different places we think or we don't think it exists. Um, and that's precisely the call for adultery, uh, no adultery, in in uh, the Ten Commandments, is because adultery is idol worship. Think about that more, but it is. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> has anyone ever seen Requiem for a Dream? I recommend not watching it, but if you have, it's very interesting. It's about drug addiction. It's an Aaron Aaron. Um, oh, what's his last truck No. Oh, whatever. Very powerful movie. Ufta. um it, It's about idol worship too, because uh, there's four characters and they're all willing to give themselves up to their addiction. In, in awful ways, ways. but one of them is like indulging in revelry. Is that what it says? Revelry, Julie? Yeah. Okay. But don't go watch it. Like, it's one of those really good movies you're like, I'm not going to watch that ever again. You know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so it happens in, in Isaiah. In fact, I read this to the pastor chat kids the other night. We're talking about garments of salvation and robes of righteousness, like a bridegroom is decked out like a priest, and the bride is something or another. Um, so that's the uh, so um, Isaiah's fulfillment of our final days, where there will be no more tears, where the lion will you know hang out with the baby, and the or the snake will hang out with the baby, and the lion will hang out with the lamb, and that's all marriage or nuptial. Psalm forty-five. Is like almost verbatim Song of Songs. I don't know why I didn't. We haven't done more on that. Maybe we will. But it's a it's a royal wedding. Yeah. Okay. So, anyways, those are examples. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah is a negative, like a negative example, where God says, "Don't marry," because Israel has gone after other gods. Don't marry. So his is like a negative thing. Or anti anti example. Okay, so again, this now goes into the New Testament, and there is a lot of New Testament nuptial imagery. It happens a lot in the last few weeks in the readings, where there's constant references to wedding feasts and also bridegroom references. Um, yeah, what's interesting, right, is uh, the bride is often not mentioned. It's implicit. So we had the wedding feast where no one showed up. Right. Hey, go, out and go out and get some more people. Have you ever thought about those wedding guests that were first invited? How would they have been related to the wedding party? It's something we don't think about. It's kind of like a business deal, right? Hey, you know, we invite my mom and dad's business partners, right, to our wedding. I'm like, you know, if, I don't, if they don't come, to me personally, it wasn't a big deal, right? So I didn't know them there's a bunch of people that would have been a huge deal if they didn't come. Like who? No, no, I'm talking about like, in, like in a, my own wedding. Family. Like my parents. That would have been a big deal to not have them show up. So when those guests in the, in the parable of the wedding feast, when they don't show up, that's who you should be thinking about. You're going to be like, just, you know, some people down the road. No, yeah, it's like your Family. So when they don't show up, it's, it says something. So in a, in a sense, who's the bride in that parable? Well, it's the family of those who didn't show up. And the father of the groom, though, what does he do? He's going he's to get some family for this, this, this young lady because he loves her. He's willing to give his son to her. Okay, so there's a whole other nuptial imagery in those parables that we should think about a lot, which I think is great, because it's like, holy smokes, God's a pretty good lover. Okay, but uh, the Gospel of John, let's let's talk about, so uh, the Gospel of John, we're going to get, we're not going to start with John chapter 1, we're going to come back to John chapter 1. So the first image, wedding, uh, nuptial imagery is in the wedding of Cana, John chapter 2, 1 through 12, we're not going to read it. Um, the wedding takes place on the third day which is actually the sixth day in the Gospel of John Six, yeah so if you actually go and count the days it's the sixth day from the beginning of the Gospel of John and that's on purpose because what happened on the sixth day in creation a wedding so Jesus shows up to another wedding on the sixth day and he's going to do something special um, now, of course, weddings were symbolic, as I mentioned, in the Old Testament of God's prosperity or the things that God will bring. There's Isaiah 61, 10 through 11. That's the, the section I read to the Pastor and kids. Um, and, of course, then in the Old Testament, nuptial imagery, too, is wedding is the union with God and Israel. And I have all those listings there, too. Ooh, I should have erased washing goes with marriage because we'll talk about that in a little bit. All right, marriage between God and Israel was a central image of everlasting eschatological joy. I had to use that big fancy word. That is like the joy of all joys, the end joy where there will be no, so a Revelation chapter like 21 and 22. That's the joy that you read at uh, funerals. Yes. Did you know funerals in the Song of Songs go together, by the way? We're on a tangent now, but I really like this tangent. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul quotes from Song of Songs. Death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? I'm sorry, not, not Song of Songs, Hosea. Okay. Hosea, of course, is all about God getting married to Israel. So what's interesting is at the end of Hosea, Hosea chapter 13 or 14, God says, this is our wedding. Our wedding is going to be the place where death has no more victory and death has no more sting. And then Paul talks about that in the resurrection. So the resurrection is is like nuptial. I think it's very fascinating. Yeah. Okay. I, look, so let's let's play this out a little bit longer. So if the resur- so because was what's how is the resurrection like nuptial? When I say nuptial, I mean like wedding. Wedding stuff. What comes forth from the resurrection? Jesus, right? You. When you are resurrected, what do, what do we call you? Well, a new creation, yep. What's it call you, a child of God? Where, where are children born from? Wombs. Yeah, so uh, we actually have it in our stained glass windows where the resurrection has a the birth canal. Uh, The the tomb is also a, well, baptism is a tomb and a womb where children are birthed, where new creation is is grown, where children of God are born. Yeah, so if you take a look at the resurrection in the stained glass window, it's an almond shape. That is a birth canal. So, going back to funerals and why... Paul quotes from Hosea, he quotes from a wedding text that applies it to the resurrection. Because this person who's sitting here will be birthed in the resurrection. And hence, the resurrection symbol's birth canal. I think that's so fascinating for me. Isn't that crazy? I've seen that all the time. I mean, I've seen that I was like, oh, it's kind of interesting. Why it's not like a circle? It's an almond on purpose. It's It's very comforting. It's a beautiful image. Yeah. Yeah. I I can go on more tangents right now, but I'm not going to. Yeah, okay. If you ever have a chance to see a child birth... can see why then Paul wants to use that image in the resurrection it's life changing okay anyways oh all right so then okay so yeah right so marriage between God and Israel I already talked about the Mosaic covenant so let's just pass on. oh so Mar- okay so Mary's presence at the wedding at Cana back to the wedding at Cana Mary is present the two times that Mary is present is the two times that Jesus says woman to her one at the wedding at Cana and one at, at the cross And John does that because he connects the two events. There's two weddings where Jesus is present. Also, too, at the wedding at Cana, you have purification, right? You have the Jewish rites of purification. You have these six stone jars that are totally huge. They're so big because why would they be so big? Does anybody, anybody know? I don't know, I, mean, I don't know if I ever... I don't want to repeat myself all the time. So you can, you can put a whole person in it. It's a whole body. And of course, when John's bringing this out, the Jewish rites of purification, um, and connecting it to weddings, you have this connection between baptism and, and, and weddings, which we see in Ephesians chapter 5, which we'll, we'll get to in a second. So it, a at the wedding of Cana, you have a wedding... That's on the sixth day. Oh, and of course, who's missing from the Wedding of Cana story? It's implicit. But who are like the main characters, though, even though they're not really there? Yeah, the bride, bridegroom and the bride. You do wonder about that? You're like, hey, I know they're there because I think it's a wedding. Why would that be? It's because you have a, you have a greater bride... In a greater bridegroom that this story serves. It's not about them, it's about Jesus. It's pointing towards another wedding. Okay, um, so you have the nuptial imagery, purification, washing, marriage, that echo Ephesians chapter 5. We'll talk about that in a second. So then you have in John chapter 3, 22 through 36, John the Baptist is the friend of the bridegroom. This happens right after Jesus meets with Nicodemus. What does is, what is Jesus and Nicodemus talk about? Baptism and? Yeah. Birthing. Baptism or birthing. Um, and, and the word of God. The seed. The Holy Spirit. Okay. So, so do you see how these are all like being just knocked down by John the rider? He's just like knocking these things down. Boom, boom, boom. Because he's he's heading towards the cross. All right. So, the best man brings the bride to the bridegroom. John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord. He prepares Israel. That was one of the jobs in the old, old days. And, of course, as the bridegroom, he must decrease and Jesus must increase. Well, we think about that kind of in an abstract, but actually it happens in a very concrete way. And this is, I'm quoting Dr. William Weinrich, Weinrich from his commentary. How does he increase? By beginning children from water and the Spirit. All right, so the friend of the bridegroom, so, so there's just more of Jesus. I mean, John the Baptist has to give way towards what Christ is doing. Friend of the bridegroom has a, a supervisory role over the bride. Even back in the old days, they would make sure they consummate the marriage. This has happened, I think I might have mentioned this, right? Did Martin Luther... Had a role in one of his friends' marriage. He had. Okay. Yeah, he was the best man at one of his friend's weddings, and they have to make sure, have to make sure that they consummate the marriage. That is weird. But they did that. Again, I see that's again like I get I get uncomfortable with it because I'm like, yeah. But if, of course, it was is for a purpose that is actually good. Um, so actually in John chapter I forgot, I forgot to look up the exact passage 30 somewhere or another John listens for the voice of the bridegroom he's glad to hear the voice of the bridegroom which most likely means the ecstasy of the bridal chamber okay that's so most likely he was behind a screen and Martin Luther was yeah right and then he says uh, his joy is my joy and the joy that, uh, the way it's spoken, in, in it means it's happened and is still happening. So the joy of the bridegroom now envelops the, the friend of the bridegroom and it, like, carries him on through his life. There's this joy. Jesus, when he heads to the cross in John chapter 16, what does he say to his disciples? My joy may be full or complete in you. So this, this uh, joy from the consummation of the marriage now has everlasting effects. Isn't that weird? It's crazy stuff. It's all in there. I know. I think it's great. Okay. So, okay, now then we get to John chapter 4. We have Jesus meeting a woman at the well. Very powerful story. See, when we have marriage, water, and a well, that's an Old Testament story. Like Isaiah, I mean, Isaac and Rebecca. Okay? In fact, St. Ambrose of Milan, in his discussion of Isaac and Rebecca, guess what book of the Bible he talks about? You, you're like, are we even talking about Genesis? He brings up the Song of Solomon. In fact, his commentary on the Song of Solomon is within his discussion of. Uh, Isaac and Rebecca's wedding. Okay, that that's kind of an interesting trivia pr- pursuit question or answer, but I think it's very interesting. All right, so Jesus is the new suitor of the woman. She's had how many husbands and the one that she's living with is not hers? Six. He's now the seventh suitor. He's the perfect one. And based of this, so so which is, I don't know if you guys ever figured this out, and I never did until I read this commentary and I was very fascinated about this, Pastor Brzezak and Bukes and I, we all talked about this, is how um, she knows he's a prophet. She's, he's talking about her his her relationship with her husband's, and then all of a sudden they start talking about worship, like going to church. You're like, what? What's going on here? Well, that's because marriage and worship go together for this woman. Um and so John's basically, the gospel writer, is now talking about how the temple has been destroyed, right? Jesus says, I'm, I'm sorry, not, he's uh, making a prophecy that it will be destroyed in three days, it'll be raised up. He's talking about his body. So true worship in the temple is now going to be put into, is centered on his body, which of course means, we talked about this before, of how the temple has the Garden of Eden imagery within it, and, It is the place, uh, the the bridal chamber, right? The um, ciborium or the, uh, you know, the canopy. So the marriage bed of the temple is now precisely in Jesus' body. So we have this ever-growing nuptial imagery. So what does this all mean? Well, basically, Jesus is the bridegroom who's ready to meet his bride to beget children of God. John chapter 1. Why did Jesus come? So that people would be born not of man, but of God. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, is the bridegroom who comes to consummate his marriage with his bride to beget children. That is in the background of what's happening in the Gospel of John. What is interesting is the language of... uh, Uh, um, I should get rid of begin of born or begotten has an inherent spousal nuptial character Um, can you be born without a father or mother no okay so you got to have that so when you talk about father God God is your father who's your mother church yeah so Ephesians chapter 5 now is the ultimate text of nuptial, nuptial imagery. And what I want to just simply talk about right now is baptism in nuptial imagery. nuptial imagery. We already kind of briefly hinted on that. So I quoted, I, I gave this to Pastor Bukes this morning. He just walked in the room. And I said, hey, why don't you read this quote? He's like, oh, it's interesting. I'm like, where do you think? It was from a LCMS commentary on the Song of Songs. He's like, where do you think it's from? Like, I don't know. I'm like, check the footnote. It's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So don't get bent out of shape about that. Because uh, I read it, and I'm like, "Well, this, this is really good. Like, Oh, and I was, ooh, okay. It actually says, <laughs> he actually puts in the footnote, um, you know, he can't say, ne- he says something kind of negative, and he says, but this quote is really, really good. It, 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 it's uh, very succinct, which I think is kind of funny. But anyways, that's beside the point. I just wanted, in case you are like, oh, this is a very good quote, I'm like, well, you better know where it's from. The whole Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ in the church. Already baptism, the entry into the people of God, is a nuptial mystery. It is so to speak the nuptial bath, which precedes the wedding feast, the Lord's Supper. That's Ephesians chapter 5. Bride is washed, and then, and then the feast. Aaron. Um, I don't know exactly how to form my questions, so
2: I'm totally going to put
0: my thoughts out there. Let's do it. But um, I, I guess I've been part of a
2: lot of, you know, evangelical contexts i have been part of various uh, things where baptism and Eucharist were done outside of the church or outside of, you know, a, a formal church.
0: Sure. Um, even
2: like school, you know, things like that.
0: Right. As I got hunger, I'm like, whoa. What's going on here? Really weird. Yeah, right. But, but,
2: but always kind of the, the language
0: that's
2: used is like, well we are in the church. Like church isn't the building, church is like the people and, Right. I, I
0: don't know, I, I still I guess I can't always see points exactly. No, that's right, but I can't <laughs> Yeah, you know okay, so they're partly right. The church is not just the people, though. Uh, We did this with confirmation kids. If it's if it's just the people, who's missing? The bridegroom. So they probably wouldn't say that's what they mean, but without being explicit, I grew up in evangelical, and I just got a bunch of people talking about the Bible. It was a almost like a volunteer association of like-minded people. that's right. Right. Yes, that's true, but what is Jesus doing when they when they gather together? I mean, just look at the Bible. What does Jesus do when he gets a bunch of people together? Feeds them. Uh, he teaches them. So he feeds them what? God's word and of course, with the institution of the Lord's Supper, he feeds them their body and blood. God's presence. So, the church is Jesus present with his bride, giving and receiving. Unfortunately, that's not explicit with you know some of your growing up. So, like at a school, Wheaton College, it used to be called all-school communion, right? Yeah. That's not communion. Why is it not communion? Yeah, I don't think there was words of institution... But also, what are, I mean, what are you missing? You're missing a pastor. There's no pastor present. I mean, they might be present, like in the building, but not acting in the person of Christ. So You know, we'd say celebrating the Lord's Supper. See, in, in the liturgy, Jesus is present with his bride... Giving his gifts, and of course, in the song of solomon that's 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 like the marriage bed I mean that's the imagery this union union coming closer to one another and so we have a pastor who is the embodiment of Christ present with his people. this is why pastors are men I mean one of the reasons so um yeah, so that's why, it, like, at all-school communion, it's not really communion. And I've had a lot of Wheaton College kids come and say, well, I don't know what I should do. And I'm like, well, just do you, don't take it. Don't eat it. I'm like, okay. And it, it's mainly because of them. They're like, what am I doing here? It's very confusing. And this is, this is also very important for us is because the, um, anything that confuses binds consciences, and that's, that's not good. When I say bind consciences, you mean that you're not sure of what's happening here. And that can be done for, for like, really good reasons and, and just kind of, like, you know, for whatever, I don't know if it's a good or bad reason. But we have to be careful because part of the gospel is setting consciences free. Kathy. This is
2: probably, again, just thoughts.
0: Yeah, right, this is good. I'm glad.
2: But I, I was born in That's right. No anything else. So... Why Why is communion ministered in other churches
0: right. outside of church or at college?
2: What would be the purpose to introduce or
0: to... Yeah, right. Good question. Have- That's great. That's great. That's a good question. Yeah, it's a... Uh, well, first of all, um, a certain denominations consider the Lord's Supper an act of obedience, meaning Christ said to do this, so we do this. And so it's a it's a it's a very it's a it's a, it's a ritual that has it's kind of just powerful for the people. Yeah, it's it's kind of on a horizontal level. It's not sacramental, meaning that you know God is doing something. Now God might be doing something in terms of like you know like uh, moving in my heart or or it being a very powerful evening, but in terms of the forgiveness of sins. That's the biggest. Dis- I mean, that's the simplest way to see it is that we go to the Lord's Supper to have our sins forgiven, to receive Christ into our bodies, so that He might live through us. Uh, you know, growing up, my church, my Baptist church, they that would they would say no. That's that's they, and they would go out of their way to say that's precisely not that, to distinguish themselves from. I grew up in Wisconsin, so to distinguish themselves from those Wisconsin Lutherans and Roman Catholics. Uh, hands up over here, yeah. Um, just to
2: touch on that too. So when I, mean, I grew up um, I cooked communion, I decided to do dash um, And so every week it was like I cooked communion and cooked. It. it wasn't and, and I was I got back And it's it's been so interesting how it's like the shift in mindset, it's like God taking communion here. God baptized my children here. And it's, it's like, um, you know, it was always, and I've actually, sorry, before at Bible study, how, like, growing up, I remember just having this anxiety around taking communion because it was something that I was doing and I was like, am oh, I the right in remembrance? You know, it's like this secret remembrance type of thing. And it was always like, am I doing it right? Taking, mm-hmm. do I have the right attitude, the right, right a, emotional state to be? Yeah, am I taking it in a worthy manner? And um, and I think it's just it's such a key difference. Because like, you know, I, I get into discussions about that because everybody always wants to know, like, why are you only leaving church now? Little <laughs> <laughs> <still> Christian. Some <laughs> 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 um, the world life, and, it, and it's, it's a little bit of like a um, and the, and the key difference that I discovered about about factism in particular is that like it's something that you're deciding to do as, a, as from the way I grew up and that you're you're committing to and you're making a statement and you're declaring before everybody what you're doing versus like here and receiving clearly God is giving this. Child,
1: like you know
0: five days old <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. yeah yeah no see this is this is really good and the, um, a little part of me this is another well this again a little bit of a tangent but related is that um, you know I, I would I would describe Lutherans as being like the most passionate kind of people Especially German Lutherans, right? Yes, Norwegian Lutherans. Yeah, pretty much any Lutheran. Let's just be honest. Historic Lutherans. You know, they're not really the most passionate people. But, you know, in Erin's description, there's a sense of passion behind her words. And me too. I mean, I'm like, I love being a Lutheran. I love it. I, I am passionate about being a Lutheran. I'm joyful because of Christ and the sacraments. And so studying the Song of Songs, it makes sense to me. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Christ is my lover who loves me with a passion that I only, you know, I, I have a, I have a, just a hope to mimic with my wife, with my friends, with my parishioners. And then... With those people who question my Christian faith, I don't get that anymore. Aaron, it'll eventually go away. By the way, people are like, "You're Lutheran? Pfft. Why?" I'll be like, cause, "Cause, of the the joy and the passion that it gives me." So, like, I'll go toe to toe with any evangelical or Pentecostal. I'll one up them, cause it is about winning, really. Okay. Yeah, I mean I think so. I mean I am i get excited about that kind of stuff because I'm so I'm so in love. It sounds weird I know, but I,
2: I uh, um, when that Christian store was open up in the Now there's this place we came. I went there a few years ago looking for a baptism card and the- Yeah. And I couldn't find any actually. And <laughs> so where are your baptism cards like i that's like one of the crucial cards that you might actually have <laughs> in the store. And so the sales girl, she was a young woman. Yeah, right. I think she might have been a student at we college, like our we hard time. And she took me over to the dedic- like the dedication. Yes. And all the cards were like, You're doing a great thing. Like good for you. And she was right. so proud of herself sort of, like, you know, and all this stuff. And I said, No, where are your like baptism cards? And she goes, Oh, this is this is the same she said this same is the
0: same thing.
2: And
0: I was like Oh no, 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 no. Evangelism.
2: <laughs> passionate description. Of, In baptism, God is doing it to you. And this dedication, I said, it's completely different. She's like, Do you want the card? <laughs> 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 this
0: isn't Ed. No, thank you.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, I. That's right, so i mean i this is this is part of this is part of our story is that we have something to be very passionate about, <laughs> and we have a whole Bible full of of our our passions that we can then share with the world um the um yeah, so all this so okay, so with such a lover as Jesus oh well I never finished john chapter four, but that's I forgot to mention all that stuff um Anyways, we're, it's time to go. The whole point, though, is that Jesus as the bridegroom is a, is a lover, you know, par excellence, right? He's he's the lover of lovers. And with such a lover as this, our our response is, is like, I mean, I know we're sinners, so it's not going to be exactly exactly the same, but it's going to be. It, it, our response is going to be one of receiving, of openness. Because why wouldn't you want to love somebody like that, right? That's silly. Someone who redeems us and changes us and sets us right. That's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 5, and that's the whole point of the baptismal imagery, the the font being the tomb and the womb. Um, Okay. But so the spousal imagery is kind of most seen in marriage but it's not just in marriage. I mentioned a lawnmower, right? Yeah, it doesn't have to be a lawnmower. So a simple image of, of this would be, I need a lawnmower. I don't need a lawnmower, I have a lawnmower. But let's say I needed one. My neighbor has one. Neighbor, can I please have your lawnmower? Neighbor says, no problem. He's the, I have a need. He's the giver. I'm the receiver. And out of this exchange, we become closer. Because now what can I do to him next time I need a lawnmower? I can trust him for a lawnmower. I know this is a very simple, silly example, but this goes to show how pervasive this image is. And of course, after I receive this lawnmower and mow my lawn, and I, uh, what do I do with the lawnmower? I give it back. with (laughs) With great joy, I fill it with gas. And I say, thank you. And now out of this experience, this giving and receiving and becoming closer, what has been birthed? Life we now have what? A life together. I know it's a very silly example, but it is true. And it demonstrates how the nuptial imagery in the Song of Songs now becomes the paradigm for our life together with, with anyone. Of course, we've already talked about this before many times. I feel like, maybe we haven't, but the two places where we live out this relationship is marriage and friendship so whether you have a earthly spouse or not you can live out this nuptial imagery in our everyday life And we just test it out just test it out because you are the giver you are the receiver what does it mean to be a gracious giver what does it mean to be a gracious receiver And what does that look like? And how does that birth life? Think about it. By the way, this is like Lutheranism 101, by the way. Martin Luther talks about giving and receiving all the time. And it's... This is it. So, as the quote said in Galatians. Okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven